Una here. You are about to listen to an audio version of a piece that has been published on the United Ireland Patreon page. It's a piece that I started writing um, when the results were coming in about the general election. And um, I was just writing it for myself to clarify my thoughts. But when I was talking about it to a couple of other people, um, they kind of said, you know, why don't, why don't you publish that? So I've done that. And if you um, don't have time to read it or are busy or just like to listen to it, I thought I'd record it as well so that you don't have to scroll endlessly on our Patreon page. But please do support us on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. It helps us keep going. So here we go. Can hope and history rhyme? The multiple narratives and reasons for the general election vote of 2020. A week ago, the landscape of Irish party politics changed dramatically. While the Irish media has naturally moved on to the next step of that aftermath, uh, covering the process of government formation, if that can even be achieved, it's worth stepping back and digesting what happened and why, and examining what is to be gained from this election result beyond the makeup of a new doll, and what could be lost if we don't realise the potential of the opportunity we've been presented with. I've been writing about the change part of Irish society for many years, and this election is another manifestation of that change. I started writing this piece as a way of explaining what happened to myself. So this is not a piece about the party organisation that is Sinn Féin, it's not about the IRA, or should I say the IRAs. It's not about the party structure or who or who doesn't pull the strings within that party or the background of its members and politicians or the Orth Corla. This is about what just happened. It's not that people don't care about the complex Sinn Féin universe or that it's not worth examining from multiple angles, but people didn't cast their vote, rightly or wrongly, on that basis. They were voting on and for something else. The new tribalism, why Irish people are moving beyond the Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil duopoly. During the campaign, I wrote a piece about how this election was also a story about a potential base Fine Gael left behind. While the swing from people who may have voted for Fine Gael in the past, becoming Sinn Féin curious and ultimately Sinn Féin voters, may seem illogical, it's important to acknowledge that the number of voters who do not land within traditional party loyalties is now very large and very movable. The tribalism of Irish party politics belongs to the 20th century. Those tribes are our parents' tribes. How the voting population thinks and acts has changed, and the old loyalties that once steered people towards particular parties have faded. As for Fine Gael, their leader was seen internationally as the embodiment of modern Ireland, yet at home, Leo Varadkar's audience tends to view him as someone who may share the characteristics of modernity in terms of identity, gay, the son of an immigrant, yet his politics, perceived to be neoliberal, override that. And while you don't choose your identity, you do choose your politics, or perhaps more profoundly, they are formed. The values of neoliberalism are not the overarching values of younger Irish people whose faith in capitalism was shattered by the financial crash and who favour solidarity and equality over the concept of meritocracy. Varadkar has been dog-whistling about his worldview for some time, his campaign against welfare cheats, his perceived aloofness regarding inequalities in Irish society, his mantra about prioritising people who get up early in the morning. This attitude is intrinsically at odds with many Irish people's perception of themselves as charitable, generous and empathic. 
In particular, the period between 2015 and 2018 was driven by campaigns rooted in equality and solidarity. So Finnegal's perceived elevation of individualism was going to ultimately fail as the impact of those grassroots movements bled into electoral politics. There is a perception that Finnegal stands for big business, small government, global capital and market-led solutions. Their behaviour and power did nothing to counter that perception. And if anything, it compounded it, as has their commentary and reaction to the vote in many ways. Sinn Féin may be the biggest story of this election, but I think there's an even bigger shift. Irish people have a tendency to vote locally in national elections. The parochialism of so-called parish pump politics, where TDs prioritise constituency work, has been a characteristic of our electoral politics for a long time. This election, bar a few TDs who ran on specific local issues, has changed that. I honestly think that this might be the most significant thing of all. This election also brought the ideals and values of left-wing politics to the fore. The call to vote left and transfer left was heard by voters. As I wrote before the election, the Sinn Féin surge in the polls was a surge within a surge. Left-wing politics and policies are connecting with the electorate. Of course, this has happened before. Three is the magic number. A new generation votes beyond the binary. Ireland's evolution to a multi-party system isn't actually an evolution. It has happened before. At the dawn of the 1990s, Ireland elected Mary Robinson as president. A feminist who had fought for gay rights, she represented what was then modern Ireland, and there have been several modern Ireland since, and now we're in another one. Dick Spring, the then leader of the Labour Party, found himself at the right place and in the right time. In the 1992 general election, Labour went from 15 seats to 33, a surge the press labelled the Spring Tide. This period, when Labour entered into coalition with Fianna Fáil and then with Fine Gael and the Democratic Left, saw Labour take six ministries, embarking on a progressive programme of social change, including the decriminalisation of homosexual acts between men, permitting the sale of condoms without a prescription, a referendum removing the constitutional ban on divorce, and the abolition of third-level tuition fees. The governments that followed them, the Bertie Ahern Celtic Tiger era in coalition with the PDs, lasted for the guts of a decade. And we all know what happened after that. So leaving aside the peculiarities of Sinn Féin as a party, and there are plenty, the Sinn Féin surge might feel more radical right now to large swathes of the Irish population, simply because it's the first time in the lifetime of most people living in Ireland today that people are voting left in such high numbers. Only those over 46 years old were of voting age when the spring tide rose. Nobody under the age of 40 in Ireland today was of voting age in 1997 when Bertie Hearn became Taoiseach for the first time. Most people in Ireland are under the age of 36. A third of our population is under 25. We have the youngest population in Europe. This could offer another reading of Mary Lou Macdonald's The Demographics Will Take Care of Themselves. While progressive wins have been achieved since then, such as the constitutional changes on marriage equality and abortion, those were achieved through grassroots activism, now, as were some of Springtide Era Labour's progressive policy changes. They were imagined into existence through people power, and let's not forget the water charges protest movement either. Not by parties chomping at the bit to get their progressive agendas over the line once they got into office. If anything, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil had to be dragged to the table on the issues of marriage equality and legal abortion. They evolved and they came with people, but they didn't lead them. Maybe what also coloured people's vote, consciously or unconsciously, was the momentum for change that those famous referendums created. 
Those changes were also part of a period of existential reconstruction that resulted in the social revolution that emerged from the crash, the recession and austerity policies. What we're dealing with now is the failures of the very particular parallel economic and infrastructural faux reconstruction that was taking place while we were busy marching and canvassing. Ireland evolved into many things, including an inequitable tax haven with a dysfunctional housing market, poor infrastructure and a creaking health service. There have been loads of good things happening too, obviously, such as unemployment falling, but people weren't voting on those. The privilege narrative, how the vote and the reaction to it is informed by privilege and class. On Sunday night, when the good people in RTE were still ringing out election coverage, excellent election coverage actually, from jaded journalists and bleary politicians, Bong Joon-ho's film Parasite made history at the Oscars, winning Best Picture, Best International Picture and Best Director. The film is an eviscerating satire about a conniving working class family of hustlers trying to get one up on an upper middle class family in Seoul. It's a film about class, urban chaos, privilege and the opportunities and treats that certain people enjoy and other people are shut out from. In an interview about his film, the director said, We all live in the same country now, that of capitalism. I thought about that film as the election results unfolded, how it illustrates how locked out some people are from privilege and how those with wealth carry on, literally above them, without even knowing the depth of pain and the gravity of suffering of others in society, without understanding the envy they evoke, the humiliation they provoke, and eventually the dramatic unrest this divide can cause. In January, I wrote a piece about how I felt this election would be typified by privilege, the haves and the have-nots. I wondered whether people would vote out of individualism or whether they would use their privilege by voting with empathy. Now we know the majority of people chose empathy. When I heard Sinn Féin's messaging during the campaign, I thought it was powerful because it was listening to and responding to that social sentiment. People felt heard by Sinn Féin and other left-wing parties. Many people were also voting on this discombobulating feeling of social mobility stalling. It all comes back to the crash. Large swathes of people are buckling under the stress that the housing crisis has caused and they resent the shortcomings in their quality of life. Now, is that hardship overstated? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe our standards are higher now than they were before. But we do have large chunks of a generation, roughly lying within a 20-year age bracket, let's say 20 to 40, locked out of the macroeconomic successes Fine Gael congratulate themselves for. People were voting out of frustration and out of exhaustion. They were voting on quality of life issues. But many people who traditionally could be described as middle class transcended their class in this vote, either because they felt that they are not on an upward trajectory anymore, or perhaps they were lending their vote not to a party, but to those less fortunate than them. There's also been a narrative that Fine Gael are posh boys. This isn't necessarily fair, but it has been very hard for the party to mute and gaffes that were made from Owen Murphy's championing of co-living to the RIC controversy, added to Fine Gael being the them and the rest of the country bar their base being the us. Class also permeates the reaction to the vote. There exists amongst a particular section of Ireland's rather tendal middle classes, and I say this as a middle class person, a distaste for Sinn Féin's working class vibe. The rebel songs, the flags, the funny Irish names, it's just not cricket. 
It's possible to desire neither Sinn Féin or Fine Gael in charge. But my appeal of self-reflection to the middle class people of Ireland and especially Dublin would be to consider this. If you do feel genuinely threatened by the prospect of Sinn Féin in government, then why don't you feel as threatened by Fine Gael in government? Perhaps the brunt of Fine Gael's policies didn't reach you. Lynn Ruan's analysis on Shona Rourke in the aftermath of the vote captured the frustration much of the electorate felt about Fine Gael's attitude. She said that it felt like Fine Gael politicians were always saying, you don't understand us, you don't understand that things are getting better, you just have to give us enough time to show you how great we are. You know, this superiority, this narcissism, this gaslighting was patronising. Enough was enough. Fine Gael's economic metrics mean very little to the person endlessly scrolling daft for a place to live and being confronted by living quarters that aren't that far removed from those semi-basements of soul depicted in Parasite. Fine Gael's insistence that the country was on the right trajectory also didn't feel real to the comfortable person in the suburbs reading horrific stories about homelessness or the fairly well-off family in rural Ireland aghast at the rent their children will have to pay when they go to college in Dublin or the rich families with their 30-something children still living at home, or the professionals who can't save for a house, or the well-travelled single person annoyed about the contrast between infrastructure, all of it, transport, recreation, culture, they encounter in different countries. Yet yeah, is curiously absent in Ireland. As Fintan O'Toole wrote, people were voting for normality. The sentiment narrative. Do feelings override facts? How heightened feelings led to a radical vote. Sentiment, sentiment, sentiment. This campaign and this election was about how people were feeling. I don't need to rehash the issues people were voting on, but the sentiment those issues created was passionate. At the moment, we're in a period of discourse about people's strong feelings on Sinn Féin. What is less discussed is many people's very strong feelings about Fine Gael. Loads of people really, really hate Fine Gael. There are literally songs about people hating Fine Gael. Owen Murphy and Leo Varadkar are the greatest targets of this ire. Is that fair? Probably not, but it's what happened. You know, one of the lines I heard again and again from people is that Fine Gael just don't get it. And there are plenty of Fine Gael people who do get it. There are plenty who don't. There are plenty who get it yet are unable to articulate that they get it because they've been so honed by a type of spin that was initially conceived as a way to connect but somehow got away from them and now it feels very distant like they're speaking behind perspex. They were disconnected and the electorate is trying to snap that connection back into place. Listen to us, we're sick of you, we're hurting, we see other people hurting, we want to try something else now please. The electorate was seeing the future Fine Gael wanted to build and they voted against it. They were voting on the idea of an equitable society. Now, did they all sit down and read the Sinn Féin manifesto? I doubt it. Do they know, even on a cursory level, Sinn Féin's background, legacy, contemporary makeup? Some don't remember that past. Some chose to ignore it. But anyone who has serious misgivings about Sinn Féin didn't vote for Sinn Féin. Many people voted for Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Many people voted for the Greens and the Sock Dems and PVP and other independent candidates. Many people just voted for Sinn Féin because they were speaking their language. Did everyone who voted for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael read their manifestos? I doubt it. But what of manifestos? Did Fine Gael insert a line in their last manifesto that read, we're going to make 10,000 people homeless? Nope. But that's what happened. And people really don't like it. We know that the sentiment for change, and it's not just random change, but change related to what Sinn Féin and left-wing parties were offering, concluded with a huge vote for Sinn Féin. 
But a large part of that vote isn't just people supporting Sinn Féin. It's also an anti-Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil vote. Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil trash-talked Sinn Féin throughout the campaign. What better way to punish the establishment than by voting for the party they're apparently allergic to? Sinn Féin will be able to convert some of this into a more permanent base. But this vote is also fluid and it could ultimately land anywhere. Nobody saw it coming, or did they? The broad consensus across media is that nobody saw this coming. Even though many journalists and commentators have been documenting the unease a decade of Fine Gael and Power gave rise to, along with the public sentiment that signposted this, dele- this election result and the social issues that have emerged from Fine Gael's policies, or lack of policies in some cases, many of us writing in traditional media noticed and documented a desire for change emerging with large tracts of people in society on the edge a burgeoning national discontent, a generation for whom issues and activism rather than party loyalties were the focus of their politicisation and how pressures in communities, housing shortages, escalating rents, corporate gentrification were being met with both resistance and helplessness. The signs were there and people were writing about them. This isn't just about columnists who are tapped into public sentiment such as Fintan O'Toole, Jean Kerrigan, Justine McCarthy and others. It's also about journalists such as Kitty Holland documenting the bold facts of the housing crises. I believe this huge vote for Sinn Féin is a manifestation of a rational social discontent. Other developments in Irish society, especially regarding an acceptance and tolerance towards Sinn Féin's past and their contemporary nationalism, and I mean nationalism in its idiosyncratic Irish context, not how nationalism emerges in other jurisdictions, that all feeds into the vote. So when people say, nobody saw this coming, I kind of think that's more to do about the political media rather than the media generally. There has been some excellent political analysis in recent weeks, months and years, but also some poor analysis. Most journalists work hard and with integrity. They're not setting out to get things wrong or to purposefully misconstrue. We all get things wrong and we all have biases. And striving for impartiality does not necessarily neutralise one's biases. We cannot blame political journalists for looking at party politics with a microscope and society with a telescope. That's their job. But in doing so, many of them have missed the kaleidoscope, the overlapping, messy, underlying, broader issues that move public sentiment, which in turn shapes election outcomes, which in turn recalibrates political power and the parties that attempt to exert it in this country. It's true to say Sinn Féin didn't see it coming, otherwise they would have run more candidates, but they were simply taking their cues from their most recent election and basing their estimations on that. My own belief is that a particular kind of public sentiment solidified between the local elections and the general elections and further during the campaign itself, which increased the contagion and momentum of Sinn Féin support. It's also important to examine how occasionally, or often, unreflective local elections are of a national mood, how mood can change from one election to another and also the makeup of Sinn Féin's new voters. Late last year I found myself having a conversation with a politician where I contended that Sinn Féin's prospective general election vote was hidden by the locals and that Sinn Féin should double down and run more candidates in Dublin. This was seen understandably as a bit of a wild take but we know that Sinn Féin has particularly inflated support amongst young people more than Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil combined, and in working class areas, particularly in Dublin. We're told that these demographics tend to turn out less, and the local election turnout was low, 49.7%. 
The general election turnout was also low, mind you, but higher than the locals, 62.9%. I suspect that a lot of people who voted for Sinn Féin in this general election didn't vote at all in the local elections. And Sinn Féin's by-election win was the canary in the mine. What was interesting about the general election campaign, however, was that while turnout was low, the level of engagement within prospective turnout felt really high. The campaign story was also mostly about Sinn Féin. So if you were engaged with the campaign, you were engaged with that story. In 2014, I wrote a piece about Ireland's political vacuum, saying at that point Sinn Féin was technically the most popular party in the country. Quote, It is the ethos of a republic that Irish people are responding to, increasingly so as the rhetoric surrounding the 1916 centenary becomes more hyperbolic. This ethos, fairness, equality, solidarity, a proud patriotism rather than a blind one, freedom of thought, robust debate and real non-sectarian republican idealism is intrinsic to much of our fabric as a society. It's embedded in our subconscious. It once was lost, but it's bubbling up again. In this vacuum and devoid of alternatives, Sinn Féin inevitably excels. When most of the talk is about the economy, a party with vague economic policies, to put it mildly, is accumulating support. End quote. I believed, and I still do, that post-crash people were searching for a brand of empathic socialism within this political vacuum. This is a vacuum that Sinn Féin found themselves filling rather than sought to fill. I had conversations with journalists in the aftermath of the repeal referendum where I contended that Sinn Féin would be the biggest beneficiary of what was happening. Some people didn't buy that and some did, but I wrote a piece about that in June 2018. Quote, Sinn Féin emerges from the referendum as the only large party with a woman leader now swooping down to grab female voters and the middle classes for whom Gerry Adams is already a memory. From my own perspective, I think I could probably summarise the sentiment of my own columns over the past seven years or so as something is very wrong. In the run-up to and throughout the campaign, myself and Andrea Horn focused on public sentiment issues and Sinn Féin's popularity in our United Ireland podcast because we felt that those were going to be the most important and relevant aspects of the election. Did other political parties see it coming? Mm, mostly not. Fine Gael didn't because they were disconnected. Fine Fáil didn't because they had already fast-forwarded to being back in power. Labour were just hopeful and nervous because they are hopeful and nervous in nature. The Greens ran a poor campaign but were hoping to surf their recent electoral wave and that actually happened. The Social Democrats stuck to their plan and are thrilled, I'm sure. Solidarity PBP, even more so than Sinn Féin, spoke directly to the issues impacting people. And it's also true that the electorate gets bored. The superficial desire for something different also probably had an impact. I know this may sound strange, but the cohort of people I think who acutely saw this coming is artists. If we examine the subject matter of recent contemporary Irish theatre, spoken word, hip-hop, and the sentiments artists more broadly were expressing, the predictions were all there. I'm not saying that if you want to know what's going to happen in an election, ask a rapper, but they would probably do a better job than Ivan Yates. Anyway, I think it's important to clarify the narrative of nobody saw it coming, because it's not technically true, and seeing things coming is not just about the nitty-gritty of seat predictions. The week of the vote, I swapped constituency-by-constituency predictions with a friend. I'm going to put my hands up here and say that I lowballed Sinn Féin in my seat predictions at 32. My friend predicted 36. Not bad. As it happens, that friend works in the research and policy area of housing. 
actually pretty much everyone I know struggling with housing saw it coming or at least felt that something had to give. The MSM narrative, how mainstream media covered and didn't what was going on. Some bizarre articles greeted Sinn Féin's electoral success in Ireland and abroad. But by the time I read Ruth Dudley Edwards equating Sinn Féin's electoral success with the rise of the Nazis in 1930s Germany, I began to wonder whether people writing these kinds of pieces want this election to be the many things it isn't. Otherwise, they'd have to confront the reasons people voted how they did. David McWilliams wrote a good piece in the FT about the things the election is not, and it's worth a read. It almost feels ridiculous to even have to write that this election is not some right-wing brain fart, that Irish people didn't suddenly lose their reason the minute they hit the polling booths. Should people have been voting on Sinn Féin's past? Personally, I think they are much more concerned about their own present, immediate future, and the long-term future of Ireland. We also need to wonder which bubble is thickest. The media bubble, largely centrist and conservative, is definitely a thick bubble. From a personal perspective, removing myself from Irish media Twitter discourse has been very helpful in clarifying my thinking and not getting captured by groupthink or sidetracked by irrelevant issues. I could spend all day tweeting pithy remarks about politics on Twitter for likes, but what's the point? Probably better to sit with my feelings, think them out, read books and talk to people. The further I walk away from social media, the more accurate my analysis of what's going on seems to be. Paradoxically, it does turn out that what is often characterised as the online echo chamber, the lefty feminist ride-on repeal sweater wearing too woke to function virtue signalling anti-establishment bubble is quite porous indeed. The media has to recognise that those viewed as members of that latter bubble, people like me, are not some lefty fringe. Our politics are actually very mainstream. The last two referendums showed that, as did this election. What we actually need are voices within mainstream media that are far more critical of the establishment and far more radical than the likes of me, and to reconsider why platforms extended to alternative voices are very often extended to right-wing, contrarian voices or entrenched opinion from a very particular Catholic perspective. Criticism of Sinn Féin escalated in the final week of the campaign in mainstream media. For me, that commentary exposed a broad suspicion that these commentators may also have a lot to lose by the establishment being disrupted. The attacks on Sinn Féin made no difference. Of course Sinn Féin should be subjected to scrutiny. But what also deserves scrutiny is why people were so dissatisfied with both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Do people know enough about Sinn Féin as a party? No. Nor do they know enough about all parties. There is also a difference between scrutiny and bias. Put simply, the final week of the campaign featured an intense media maelstrom related to the IRA, and at the end of it, more people went out and voted for Sinn Féin than was even expected at that point. Although it's worth saying that the final Irish Times opinion poll was almost spot on. I heard many journalists say that all the raw chat would spook Sinn Féin's newer voters on the day. I concurred to some degree. I thought the media focus on the IRA would shave a few points off Sinn Féin's vote share. That didn't happen. What does that tell us? Probably that at some point, along with continuing a thorough scrutiny of Sinn Féin, the media itself is simultaneously going to have to park what it considers people should be bearing in mind when they vote and consider what people are actually bearing in mind when they vote. I also know a lot of people find themselves irritated by media coverage of the election while simultaneously being concerned about the tone of their own response to it, that suddenly they were using the same mainstream media language tropes as the kind of people who have hashtag MAGA in their Twitter bios 
which is a very strange feeling for those who usually trust and value Irish media. Anyway, there was loads of decent mainstream media coverage. I thought the Irish Times was really very good throughout, although I would say that. But I think it's important to single out RTE's coverage across the campaign and over the election weekend and in its aftermath as excellent, with some exceptions, naturally. The scale and depth of their coverage across television, radio and online was impressive. Many of the presenters and journalists and commentators were good, but a special level of appreciation has to go to Claire Byrne. This would be a good time to finally introduce a media licence so the audience who benefited from that coverage without owning a television can pay RTE back. There has to be an analysis of why large swathes of the Irish public are voting for Sinn Féin that moves beyond, or is separate to, their traditional analyses of the party and their background. This is not letting Sinn Féin off the hook, but their electoral success is not about the IRA. It's not even about a border poll or Irish unity. It may not even be about republicanism or nationalism. It's about how Sinn Féin adapted to the electorate as the electorate adapted to it. The online narrative. What happens when everyone is shouting on social media? It's very hard in this current moment not to resort to whataboutery. It's also very hard when a lot of heat is being given to something not to become entrenched in your own opinions. I found myself resorting to whataboutery in conversations with people. I'm becoming entrenched in my opinions. I found myself so sad about Breach Quinn's pain and completely understanding why people who feel that their suffering has been compounded by Sinn Féin do not want others to vote for them. I also found myself wondering whether the circumstances of Paul Quinn's brutal murder would be pursued as a story after the election, or whether it was being given a lot of heat just in this moment. I found myself thinking that Sinn Féin does have a lot of questions to answer about the IRA, yet I rarely if ever hear DUP, quest- DUP politicians questioned about Ulster Resistance, which was established in 1986 at a rally chaired by Sammy Wilson and addressed by Peter Robinson, or indeed Third Force, the militia Ian Paisley tried to set up before then. I found myself wondering why Sinn Féin had to answer questions about their ugly past, but Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael rarely have to answer questions about theirs, about the state's collaboration with religious organisations, creating what Caelan Hogan calls the shame industrial complex, imprisoning people, particularly women, babies and children, en masse for generations. Some may say that our brutal, misogynistic, theocratic past is way, way back, and that the IRA is more contemporary, but Magdalene Laundries were operating in the same decade that the Good Friday Agreement was signed, and many Fianna Fáil politicians publicly opposed basic reproductive rights for women as recently as 2018. I found myself thinking that this comparison was illogical and unhelpful, but I couldn't get away from it. I found myself wondering why Sinn Féin has to answer questions about who or what impacts their decision-making, yet there is a lack of analysis of the multiple forces that influence decision-making in other parties, the lobbyists, the ideologies, the personal interests, the private companies, the financial institutions, the property developers, and so on. I found myself wondering what actually goes on behind closed doors in Sinn Féin, and remembering the other things that went on behind closed doors, like the bank guarantee. I found myself thinking about the hypocrisy of asking who pulls the strings when Fianna Fáil lost our economic sovereignty, and Fine Gael attracted global capital to reconfigure it. I found myself wondering... Why I grew up in a country that dubbed Jerry Adams's voice on television, take a bow Stephen Ray, because he was bad, but not the voices of clergy members who participated in moving paedophile priests around the country who raped children with impunity. I found myself wondering how we weight violence, and which violence matters, and which violence we decide political parties have to answer for. The violence the IRA perpetrated, the violence of people living on the streets, the violence of babies in unmarked graves, 
the violence of children growing up in small hotel rooms, the violence of people taking their own lives in the aftermath of the crash, the violence of emigration, the violence of direct provision, the violence of hospital waiting lists, the violence in communities riddled with drug-related crime because it provides an economic opportunity that is otherwise absent. And then I found myself thinking that this whataboutery was unhelpful. I was arguing with myself. I was also conscious that a lot of my internal arguments were being kick-started by what the media was focusing on and not by what people were voting on or the issues that they cared about during this election. This is not the first time Sinn Féin have answered questions about the IRA. Remarkably, in a conflict so entrenched, Northern Ireland, with all of its divisions, managed to somehow steer itself through a peace process in the 1990s, the culmination of which was the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 that ended most of the violence. We held two referendums on that agreement, North and South, and the people of both jurisdictions said, yes, this is what we want, this is what we need. But I'm also not a fan of blindly moving on. I think we should be constantly excavating and reflecting on the past. But why do we choose certain strains of the past to examine and not others? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this election result will turn us into Venezuela, as Fianna Fáil politicians, whose party turned Ireland into a financial basket case, are yelling. Or maybe it's just democracy at work. Maybe it's people sick of a government that committed the classic Irish politician's error. They didn't look after things at home. Remember that cool Labour government bringing all that social progress in the 1990s? Well, Dunleary dumped Neil Brannock, the Minister for Education who ended third-level tuition fees in the next election. The next election. Maybe because she didn't hang out in Cavistons enough or never went to see Aslan in the Noggin Inn. I don't know. More often than not, arguing about things on the internet is wasted energy and time. It decontextualises discourse and rewards rage. And we should also be responsible for our own roles in this conversation. Are you enhancing division? Are you scoring points? When I feel like saying something on the internet, I sit with my thoughts and try to think them out. Mostly, I try to calm down. The populism narrative. What kinds of populisms are at work and do they matter? The charge of populism is levelled at Sinn Féin, but the position that this was a Trumpy, Brexity vote is not the case. However, Sinn Féin definitely made very attractive and popular promises throughout. Yet Sinn Féin were only able to make those promises because normal things aren't being fulfilled in our society. A party proposing things such as building public housing, freezing rents, fixing the health service, getting people the affordable childcare they need, taxing big tech, making really wealthy people pay more tax and so on, isn't being totally off the reservation crazy. These things sound pretty sane to the electorate. Does Sinn Féin have neon shades of left-wing populism amongst the green? Sure. But if anything had a Trumpy Brexity flavour, I'm afraid it was Fine Gael's election campaign. The parody videos, the attack ads, the memes. People hated it. Sinn Féin's campaign, on the other hand, was aspirational, forward-looking, positive. Well done to Liz Carolyn and co, who instigated the Fair Play pledge. But politicians also have a responsibility outside of campaigning not to exacerbate division or create and pit sides against each other. I don't think we should let any party off the populism charge. Fianna Fáil literally gave people free money during the Celtic Tiger in the form of the SSIA scheme. Giveaway budgets were the norm. As an opposition party at the time, Fine Gael didn't exactly fight against those things. Populism also requires a connection to the electorate. You have to know what people want in order to offer it to them. Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have lost that connection. 
the leader narrative, there's something about Mary Lou. Not so long ago, the narrative was that Mary Lou MacDonald's transition as leader from Jerry Adams' long stint was failing. This narrative was short term. Look at the long term. Mary Lou connects with people. She's personable, authoritative, confident and warm. And she looks in charge. Many women, especially young women, respect her. Some leaders have followers. Mary Lou has fans. During one of the debates, I saw some people say that Mary Lou's use of the term mansplaining was out of order and that it would hurt her. I thought her use of it was inaccurate, to be honest. But what men hearing Mary Lou say mansplaining don't understand is that she wasn't speaking to them. This language connects with the young women who have come to view Mary Lou as the answer. The question? When can we have a female Taoiseach? This is where the repeal narrative also comes in. Swathes of young women became politicised during the repeal movement. There were loads of female politicians, some of who ended up losing their seats, who worked hard to gain reproductive rights. During that campaign, Mary Lou adopted a stateswoman-like stance. The fact that Sinn Féin were present on the ground during repeal, along with many other party members and party activists, especially socialist and left-wing and centre-left parties, including Labour and PBP, meant she wasn't paying lip service or bandwagoning. There was no movement to unseat women TDs who fought hard for repeal, nor was there an impactful one to elect them. The repeal effect reaches beyond that. Ellen O'Malley Dunlop, Kate O'Connell and Deirdre Duffy didn't fail to get elected because people were punishing feminists. They didn't get elected because they ran for Fine Gael. Young voters are looking at the big picture. The upshot of a generation which has become politicised through activism and protest is that they are looking to left-wing, non-individualistic ideologies for solutions. The ideals of solidarity have sunk in. This is the impact of repeal. It is much more sophisticated, much broader, much more nuanced than thinking just because Ruth Coppinger, sadly, lost her seat, repeal doesn't have an impact on electoral politics. I've had many conversations with journalists about the long-term impact of this social revolution in Ireland. I understand why many journalists don't share my outlook on what that impact would be. Again, microscope, telescope. My perspective is coloured by the fact that I was very involved in both the marriage equality and repeal campaigns. I also published two books about them, In the Name of Love and Repeal the Eighth. I understand the sentiment and energy that they captured and that emerged from them. It's not just about women. It's not just about male allies. It's not just about LGBT people. And it's not just about cis-straight allies. It's about everything, together. It's about the power of the collective. It's about ambition. It's about taking politics into your own hands. It's about social change. It's about potential. It's about a lack of fear. It's about doing things for ourselves. It's about a vision for the future. I hear a lot of people talking about how this whole election was about change. Lads, the whole fucking decade was. The team narrative. Who's got the best bench? The perception of Pierce Doherty and Ono Brin, I bet he's glad he wrote that book, worked to Sinn Féin's advantage. Doherty's famous performance at the Public Accounts Committee where insurance industry bosses lined up like skittles and he morphed into a bowling ball was the beginning of a new phase of awareness for him and of the potential and ethos of Sinn Féin's elected representatives. O'Brien, with his serious, nerdy and expert appraisals of housing, increased the party's credibility. It turns out that's all they needed to convince the electorate the party knew what they were doing. This trust in Sinn Féin's people is also a consequence of the perceived lack of expertise within Fine Gael's cabinet. Having people who seem to know what they're talking about exposes that. Fianna couldn't get beyond Micheál Martin during the campaign. 
I honestly can't point to an impactful contribution from any other Fianna Fáil politician. As for Fine Gael, their team was also part of the problem. Besides Pascal Dunahoo and Simon Coveney, I don't think people were overly sold on Fine Gael's cabinet. No matter how much below-profile Owen Murphy kept during the campaign, he remained at the forefront of people's minds. Part of Fine Gael's downfall was to, also to do with team members. Maria Bailey, Dara Murphy, Verona Murphy, briefly, Charlie Flanagan, Catherine Noon. They all met a hames of different things, and Varadkar didn't clean up their messes swiftly enough, apart from with Noon, which was nothing to do with his leadership or any decisions he could have made. By the time the election was called, almost every Fine Gael story for a year had been negative. A lot of these incidents also compounded the electorate's suspicions about Fine Gael's sense of detachment, arrogance and entitlement. Add to that the children's hospital's budget creating the most expensive hospital in the world, soundbite, and they were really stumbling into an election campaign with way too many targets on their back. The nationalist narrative. How a new Ireland takes from an old Ireland. So there was a lot of chatter about Desi Ellis singing Come Out You Black and Hands and David Cullinan shouting Up the Ra, and some people are offended by this. Others are offended that these people are simultaneously not offended by Fine Gael's policies. <laughs> but just because you're not happy with an elected representative saying up the ra doesn't mean you're okay with homelessness or the overflowing budget of the children's hospital. Enter the pearl-clutching narrative, something that in contemporary insult rhetoric is surely a reverse snowflake. It goes without saying that casually shouting up the ra is dumb. Can up the ra ever be said by a politician without consequences or criticism? Probably not, which is why Cullinan kind of sort of apologise for saying it. But people do say it. If you have never or only rarely heard up the ra said by a friend or someone at a match or in a pub or at a party or as an interjection during the fields of Athenry, maybe question why you aren't hearing it. What's your context? I don't mean to let Sinn Féin's own reaction to their success off the hook here. But considering the gravity and scale of their victory, you could also frame their reaction as understated, relatively. That said, it's pretty hard to distance yourself from the IRA and convince people of that distance when one of your TDs is shouting about it. Even if Cullinan was referring to the past, his enthusiasm sounded pretty contemporary. Issues around identity and nationalism obviously play into Sinn Féin's success, and they're worth talking about. I've been thinking about and writing about them a lot, about a new generation who are moulding a new type of inclusive patriotism. I don't know if this is a good or bad thing. About the rise in brexit fueled anti-English sentiment. About how the idea of United Ireland is on the table. About how whatever that new Ireland looks like has to be inclusive and compassionate and include our unionist brothers and sisters. You know, Paulie Doyle wrote a very interesting and prescient piece in Vice last year titled How Militant Irish Publican Slogans Went Viral. What Doyle outlines in that piece speaks to the nuances of younger people not caring about the seriousness of the IRA and even trivialising it. And let's remember that the reason younger people are able to do that is not just to do with the passage of time, but because the threat of a return to large-scale violence looms less large, although that said it has returned to people's minds in the context of the potential disruption Brexit may cause. We also need to remember the mindless violence carried out by Republican dissidents who intimidate, kill and maim. This is also violence that Sinn Féin regularly condemns. The intersection of the sentiment Doyle writes about in Vice and the actual very non-ironic republicanism of Sinn Féin means that where older people are concerned about Sinn Féin's republicanism, younger people have already 
been primed not to dwell on it due to their own co-opting of republicanism's lexical semantics and aesthetic. Older commentators in the media would understand this more if mainstream media actually included a broader plethora of young people within its stable, which it doesn't. There are very few people under 30 with opinion columns in newspapers. There are very few presenters under 30 on RT radio. But at the same time, young people are engaged, but their engagement is just happening elsewhere. More young people are listening to Blind Boy than are listening to Sean O'Rourke. One of the best analyses of the election to date happened on a second captain's podcast with Ken Early. I think some of Joe.ie's coverage also resonated. Influencers, for want of a better term, also caught the mood on Twitter and Instagram. Voices such as Emma Kerwin's cut through. What has become mainstream youth media has moved away from the traditional gatekeepers. While we still have a large audience for shared media, the fringes are growing and parts of the mainstream are ageing. Focusing on Sinn Féin's past can seem like something of a luxury, I think, because it indicates that one's entire bandwidth is not taken up with the present. Focusing on the present is also a luxury, because you weren't there to understand the brunt of the troubles. It's naive. But when Sinn Féin offered solutions to specific hardships, many of the people suffering from those hardships were willing to overlook other aspects of the party in pursuit of their solutions. Young people were not voting on Irish unity, but they are likely to support it. This makes Sinn Féin's ability to capture their vote even more likely, because here you have a party talking about the issues that matter to many people, a party with a massively ambitious vision for the future of Irish society, a united Ireland, and a party that the electorate themselves has decided they can dilute the things that previously made it problematic and perhaps even embrace them. Maybe this is cognitive dissonance, but I don't think it's a vindictive one. It's just happening. Can that nationalism go wrong? Sure, at any moment, anything can. Neoliberalism can go very wrong too. This election is an opportunity. Can hope and history rhyme? The moment we're in now, either accidentally or by some hand of fate, is another phase in a process of reconciliation with ourselves and our nation's past. We have done this with so many scars. Our reconciliation with how queer people have been treated in this country. Our reconciliation with how women have been demonised in this country. This vote is in part a reconciliation with the crash. And it's also a point of view about how the future could be shaped. But this election is not just an opportunity to reconfigure the political landscape. It's a moment where we can discuss the origins of our now contemporary Irishness. We better get talking, because we're about to commemorate the Civil War. This is a moment to be open and to be talking about our issues, hang-ups, fears and worries about Irish republicanism, about nationalism, about unity, about religion, about sectarianism. How can we make this new phase of national conversation healthy? It's about recognising what that feeling is when we flinch when we hear up the raw, and it's about recognising what that feeling is when we want to say it. It's about the past and it's about most of us alive now in the Republic not fully understanding its trauma. It's about the weird emotional legacy of witnessing a conflict from a distance. It's about recognising how apologetic and maybe even ashamed we are about not having direct experience of it yet still somehow owning it. It's about our survivor guilt. One thing we cannot do is repeatedly say to those involved in the troubles come in from the cold evolve change progress and then when they do reject their evolution or normalization or whatever you want to call it we can disagree with them we cannot vote for them 
We can criticise them, we can slag them off, we can subject them to scrutiny, but we cannot reject them. No more than we can reject any of us on this island. Pro-lifer, priest, immigrant, lesbian, whoever. We have to understand and learn from each other. Voting for Sinn Féin was not a time machine vote. It was a combination of their policies appealing to people, a protest vote against Fine Gael's policies, the contagion of a campaign in which the momentum was all on their side, a desire for change, and a broader move to the left, rooted in the desire for a more equitable society. People voted on issues that mattered to them. The IRA is not one of those issues. Should it have been? Maybe, but it wasn't. Should how Sinn Féin operates, how it's structured, who it answers to have been in people's minds when they voted? Maybe, but it wasn't. Is that revisionist or irresponsible or reckless or ahistorical? Maybe. But maybe people also wanted to break the binary of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. The urge to vote left was real and that's what happened. As a journalist in Ireland, when you don't write overtly critically about Sinn Féin, your analysis can be perceived as an endorsement. I am not a supporter of any political party. I think enthusiasm for any political party should be treated with scepticism. Like all fandom, it's blind. But I understand Sinn Féin's newfound support. I understand their momentum. I see what's attractive about them. And I think we should talk more about the issues that underpin that and how Sinn Féin has managed to capture those issues and voters. And ultimately, I can only write from my perspective and I'm trying to be as honest as possible. The worst possible outcome of this election is division. What we need now are calm heads. Step away from your arguments in WhatsApp groups and your pithy spats on Twitter. Stop talking about sides. This is bigger than that. Sit with your feelings. Think them out. We're all in this together. So let's try chart a path forward. And like that's what we've been doing for a decade and there's no need to stop now. Change comes dropping slow, then fast, then slow again. Goes in all directions. This election is a manifestation of discontent, but it's also an action born out of hope and the belief in the potential of a country that has a habit of ceding its autonomy, voluntarily or otherwise, in this order, to the British, to the Vatican and to global capital. We are a nation and a generation that believes strongly in the potential of the us's, and this is also a sentiment Sinn Féin has tapped into. Maybe, just maybe, we should be looking to ourselves for solutions. Who knows what we'll find? Whatever your feelings are about the result, this is a moment where hope and history can rhyme. There is an opportunity here, if we're willing to calmly explore it. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Larry and Sarah for your input notes and edits, and also to Catherine and Paul for our conversations about the election, and of course, to my queen, Andrea. If you like this sort of thing, please consider subscribing to the podcast, patreon.com forward slash United Ireland, for as little as $3 or whatever it is in euros a month. And you get podcasts and posts, bonus episodes, treats, rewards, and you enable myself and Andrea to keep United Ireland going.